in some ways the practice not on? It's on. Cool. We'll try it on this one. Any better? Not so much. Any better? Yeah, a little better? Cool. Thank you. In some ways, the practice, it's stepping out of this charade that the ego is in. But it's also kind of a, a love affair with awakening. You know, wanting to tend to each moment with this kind of care. So Gil laid out the framework of how we were thinking about the retreat, the theme of the Four Noble Truths and the Brahma Viharas. Today I'm going to talk about the Second Noble Truth, the cause of suffering. Yeah, about 45 minutes. <laughs> Cause of suffering. Hmm. When I think about the word, or the phrase, the four noble truths, and I think about... Uh, actualizing these, or understanding these, or realizing these, that they can actually ennoble our lives. And Joanna spoke, really laid out suffering for us last night. The many disguises. And they say that the suffering is caused by craving. So this word tanha comes up. And tanha can be translated as thirst. Or another translation that I particularly like is the fever of unsatisfied longing. Let yourself feel that phrase, a fever of unsatisfied longing. Anybody relate to that? A little bit? I've done years of field research in this area. So the Brahma Viharas are these four expressions of love, you could say, or attitudes of love. Where metta, or loving kindness, sees beings deep wish to be happy. Uh, all beings have this. It's something that connects us to all beings. 
compassion sees what's difficult about being. So it sees what's hard. So when we talk about craving or suffering, compassion is a natural response, you could say, to uh, the predicament that we find ourselves in. Cravings talked about in three ways, three domains of craving, they say. One is for sense pleasures. The other is for desire for things to be and de desires for things not to be or to bring things into existence or to push them out of existence. So what I want, what I don't want, sense pleasures. Because we're desire-based creatures that this whole thing seems to be spinning around based on our desires, compassion is a very useful thing to understand or to practice. When we take into consideration impermanence, we see that there's just no way these things could ever fulfill us. Even if I got what I wanted, the long shot that I actually found exactly what it is that I wanted and somehow got it, either I would stop wanting it or the thing would stop delivering what it is I thought I wanted in the first place. So just because things change, there can't be a, a sustained fulfilling. Does that make sense? Oscar Wilde, he puts it a lot more poetic. He said, there are only two tragedies in life. One is getting what you want. No, one is not getting what you want, the other is getting it. Because we've all been there, we've all known that, that truth. When we finally cornered what we want, and then it changed. So we have this craving that's a really intensely compelling part of our nature. And the Buddha, he made a lot of lists of unwholesome mind states. Lots and lots of them. But he centralized craving as the one that causes suffering. So there was something particular about that one. That our lives could literally be consumed with this pursuit of happiness. this ever-eluding pursuit of happiness. Again, not because we're failures at getting what we want, but because ultimately the things are unsatisfying in and of themselves. When I got, I got clean in uh, 1987, 
I was living a really wild teenage life and I was about 110 pounds and I was in a really bad way. And somebody kind of helped me out. And uh, I had about a, a few days, maybe a week clean, my uh, appetite came back. And I was, I didn't know anything about living. So I, I went back to the place I was staying and I was hungry and I ate a half a gallon of ice cream. It wasn't fulfilling. <laughs> this is a, the field research I spoke about. I knew so much of it. I just thought, you know, if a little ice cream is good, more is going to be really good. Not understanding really how nutrition worked. I like poetry a lot, and uh, Yeats, he puts it in such a beautiful framework. He said, consume my heart away, sick with desire, and fastened to a dying animal. It knows not what it is. Mm. So we're trying to wake up to the very nature of the wanting mind. If things led to fulfillment, we would be out there getting them. We wouldn't be sitting in the woods trying to be quiet and watch the nature of our minds. Right? Just consider for a moment the piles of pleasures you haven't indulged in. <laughs> Just literally like mountains of ice cream and chocolate and many other things. Ann Carson, she puts it like this. She says, there's, when desire is present, there's three things. There's the lover, the beloved, and the space which separates them. In other words, there's always a gap or an obstacle in the space between me and what it is I want. And I think somehow that if I close that space, I'm going to be closer to what it is that's going to bring me happiness. I just want to get rid of that space. When I consider what's being said here in the second noble truth, it's uh, asking us for a, a deeper inquiry into that space. What do we do in that space? Can we really discover what it is we really want in this, through this wanting mind? Learning to explore the wanting mind or desire 
Now that may have nothing to do with the object itself. We're talking about the mind that wants it and uh, the urgency in which we try to fulfill it. We try to put an end to that wanting by getting it. Joanna spoke about it last night. All, Hafiz says, all movement is a sign of thirst. For some reason, when I started getting interested in these kind of conversations, there was a lot of judgment about my desires. Uh, yeah, I don't want to say like, uh, yeah, even like, it became like almost a moral issue. And I really tried to not want what I want, you know? I tried to do that, man. I really tried. I super like ate veggies and wore white and prayed all the time, and it just sucked. <laughs> like, like a worst, worst two weeks of my life, you know. <laughs> I knew I was gonna be a failure, you know. I'm just not good at not wanting what I want, you know. It's just, hmm. So we look at where does this desire, this wanting mind deliver us? You know, like, how do we know what's healthy and what's unhealthy? How do we know that which leads towards suffering and that which leads towards liberation? Because there's healthy desires, right? We came here out of an intention, out of a want to have some peace or well-being, whatever your intention was. I notice that when I want something, and I want something all the time, you know, I want something many times throughout the day. But when I'm really fixated on an object, you know, I feel the contraction. You know, the last thing I wanted really bad was this, this kind of tuxedo jacket, you know? It's bad. It's so bad. It, I mean, it's... If you saw it, you would think I was crazy. Like, it's literally... You know, I, I found it under looking under, like, super loud. You know, it's just like crazy, like, Versace-inspired, like, leopards. You know, it's bad, man. It, but when I imagined myself wearing it, I was just like, man, I'm be killing it. <laughs> and like all my friends are laughing in the background, like having a good time. I, I'm a little bit taller, you know what I mean? I, <laughs> wow, this is an amazing jacket, you know? <laughs> but I noticed myself, the, the wanting mind, it was like uh, contracted around like I'm, you know, I become fixated. It's like tunnel vision. And all I could see is this stupid jacket, you know? It's like, wow, man. So there's an invitation to explore the state that it puts us in. 
like this is a preview like this is already suffering i already feel it you know hmm. So, compassion, you could say, is meeting that suffering, right? If compassion sees the suffering in beings, in myself, no difference, it meets that with some heartfulness, some real kind of care, that pain will become transformed into compassion. So how do I meet that wanting mind? How do I see that it's not my fault that I want this thing? It's just, you know, one thing to another, like a monkey swinging on the branches, right? Grabbing next, next, next. You know, my desire is like that, where it's like, it's a moving target. It's always like a shell game, you know? Whenever I think some other moment is going to hold what this one doesn't. There's just a, a leaning toward that moment. So how do I break this fixation on the object? Because I just think, ah, it's just the thing. It's just, I've never seen a, a cooler thing than that. Whatever it is, you know. How do I take my focus off the thing and onto back to me in this state that it's putting me in? And it's not the jacket that's doing it. It's the wanting mind. It's that clinging and attachment, right? I mean, how many times have you thought that to yourself? If, if I could just have this thing, I'd be cool. I'm cool with it. You know, and I've done it in relationships, I've done it with jobs, you know, where I'm just like, okay, if anybody's listening, God, Buddha, anything, just let me get this thing and it's going to be good. And whatever that thing is changes all the time. <coughs> you know, it really goes from like, from the time I was a kid, I've always felt that way. You know, I wanted to get out of my house and away from my father. I wanted, you know, to get a car. You know, whatever the next mirage was of like, then it's going to be cool. Right now, this is whatever, but then it's going to be on. You know, it's like, wow, you know, I'm going to get married. That's when it's going to be on. And then it was like, okay, when I get divorced, that's... <laughs> It's actually literally going to be on. <laughs> so. so there's something that happens in that state of leaning. Because we're leaning out of the present moment. And we're leaning toward this moment that's going to have so much fullness we ain't even going to know what to do. But it's always coming. It's, it's never here. It never really arrives. But what does happen is, as I lean out of this moment, I have to leave myself in some deep way. The very meaning of being unfulfilled, you know. 
how how can we ever have a chance at satiation? Satiating ourselves if we're not here. So if we look at what does the thirst represent? What do we really want? You know, if I'm going to get really kind of uh, bottom line about it, I would say my deep desires are connected to belonging, connection, coming home to myself in some way. Every, everything I want, I believe that's what it's going to deliver me on some level. You know, if I talk about the deep desires for, for things. And wanting the state itself is very lonely. Because you're over there. Y'all out there. I'm over here with this cool ass jacket. <laughs> right? So now I'm alone. I'm, there's a lot of distance between us. So the very feeling I'm trying desperately to avoid, I'm kind of perpetuating. It's like drinking salt water. I can't get the thirst quenched. I don't want to paint it all with one brush because there is some gratification. And I want us to be able to explore that as much as the wanting mind. There's many times throughout the day that I feel, <sighs> you know, yeah. So I want us to see both sides of it, not just the wanting. I want us to stay present through the wanting. And if you end up getting it, you know, so seeing the birth of the desire, watching it, it's life. And whether you get the thing or not, watching, how long does the gratification last? If it does come at all, how long does it last? What happens afterwards? I think this is how we come to understand the wanting mind. To see. Maybe it's fleeting nature. To see where does, re where does relief actually come from? I want something. There's this craving. As I've kind of explored this realm, I felt more relief from the wanting mind releasing its grasp on me than from the object delivering it. So here we are with this contracted feeling and then finally that lets go, that releases. 
And that feeling is really good. And it's got nothing to do with the, the object. Something that was kind of news to me when I came to practice a little bit was that I could bear experience. That I could sit in the center of my experience and bear it. I always was in this kind of reactive mode of trying to uh, get away from it or change it or trying to make it something spiritual or any of my strategies I had. Lots and lots of strategies. But we're resting, we're cultivating this kind of unconditional presence. Right? We're sitting in the center of experience. And we're trying to train our response ability, right? Our ability to respond skillfully to what arises. This is the mental training that we're doing to stay in touch with what arises. I see even if there's healthy desires, that when there's clinging and attachment, they always lead to fear. You know, it's like hope and fear playing this game with me. It's the clinging and attachments that are the problem. So we look at like the practice and how, how does this training that we're doing, how does sitting and tending to each moment with this kind of care, how do we see this played out? Yeah, there's a, a Burmese teacher named Ajahn. And he talks about this way that he does an inquiry as he's sitting. And the three questions he asks himself are, Am I waiting for something to happen? Am I wanting something to stop happening? And am I in touch with what's happening? So we can see the greed, the aversion, and the delusion in each moment. And just sometimes when I, when I'm sitting, and I just the the that question pops into my mind, and it instantly kind of liberates. Like I notice, wow, I was totally leaning toward that quietness because there was like f two seconds without thoughts or whatever it was, and I want that to continue. Or oh, I had that memory that. This is a bad memory, and I'd like that to go now. I let it go, now please go, right? <laughs> so 
you see how you're leaning. It could be so subtle. The mind is so, so slippery. But the inquiry helps me come back into the center of my experience, not leaning toward, not leaning away. You know, we find ourselves irritated in practice. It's, oh man, it's it's almost exclusively what I'm doing on the cushion. It's just like dealing with like my expectations and all the stories and my judgments, and it's just like, okay, can we? The practice is asking us if we can go deeper than the uh, irritation and to see. What expectation is sponsoring this? You know? And then what is the craving that's sponsoring that? We want to be able to see these different levels of like how we create our own suffering. This is really what we're doing. We don't want to squander any suffering. Ajahn Chah had a sign on his monastery and it said, we don't come here to be comfortable, eat well, or sleep well, only to know suffering and how not to cause it. So whenever there's any bit of suffering, it's like, okay, what is my part in this? One of my teachers said desire is this, this feeling of being homesick. Nisargadatta Maharaj, Mr. Natural they called him, he's, he said, the problem is not desire, it's that your desires are too small. A very dangerous statement for somebody like me. <laughs> but I understand, you know. Even the Dalai Lama, he talks about it. He's like, look, man, it's not you. It's the condition. He's in this, you know, he's a pretty elevated cat. And he's, you know, going back and forth to this conference center teaching over the course of a week, laying down the Dharma, beautiful cat, flowing robes, the whole thing, right? He notices, wow, we're, we're driving through midtown Manhattan. Crazy electronic stores everywhere. And he's like, yo, I'm glued, by the end of the week, he's like, I'm glued to the window. He's like, I see things I want and I don't even know what they are. <laughs> this is us. William Blake, he said it beautifully, he said, those who restrain desire do so because theirs is weak enough to be restrained. <laughs> I think William Blake was Italian. I'm pretty <laughs>
So here we are in this human condition. We're all this craving. I mean, we're born out of craving. <laughs> like literally uh, the product of craving. This path is pointing toward compassion for this state that we're in. So on some level it's like, okay, I, I got the keys, now where's the locks? You know, like I got to find out where it is that I'm stuck. Where, where is it that I apply this teaching of tending to suffering or craving? Nisargadatta is pointing toward, he's like, don't get rid of desire. Like, deepen your attention to what it is you truly desire. Like, if you're going to want something, want something big, want something outrageous. Don't settle for mediocre dreams. When I reframe my own desire in terms of through the lens of connection and belonging and coming home, you know, through that lens, there's a different quality to it and a different understanding, a way that I'm able to meet it, what's actually happening, not what I'm fixated on, but what's the heart want? What do I really want? When we could be with the root of our desire, it takes away some of the smoke and mirrors. And perhaps allows the poison to become the medicine. And that's what I'm always interested in. Is what is the alchemy here? How do we transform something as prevalent as, desi as desire is, as the wanting mind. How do we turn that into the path? You know, like if, if wanting is endless, then our exploration of wanting, our response to wanting becomes the practice. There's a lot of fuel in it. So we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We want to do like the peacocks do. They eat the poison and it makes their feathers beautiful, right? So no matter what shape the wanting takes, we want to follow it back to the source. We don't want to cut off from our aliveness and our passion. But, but to let it free us through like a real understanding, a true understanding of it. The path 
that's always asking us to become intimate with what's arising. If we follow it back, we may even be able to see the the emptiness of craving and taste of freedom that awareness can illuminate through this process, you know? So the question isn't, is desire good or bad or is this right or wrong or it's more like how do we respond to or relate to the presence of wanting how do we see clearly this endless tug of war with the moment wanting this not wanting that even this vague restlessness you know that so many of us struggle with you know these things become our whole world this tunnel vision that I mentioned earlier How do we keep coming home when home doesn't feel like enough sometimes? I, I broke my computer. And I go to the store, and uh, the guy says, hey, uh, you know, make it do what it was doing when you say it broke, you know? And I says, well, you know, it was, you know, I can't. It's not doing it anymore right in front of you. <laughs> and he says, well, I, I can't fix something that's not broken. You know, like, if you can't make it do it, I can't make it stop doing it. And so in this way... When desire or the wanting mind arises, we got something we can work with. Well, this, is, this is not abstract anymore. It's not hypothetical. It's like, no, I want those ducks to stop it or whatever it is, right? There's a, a metaphor I hear a lot in teachings, and it's called the poison tree, and it's about this, this tree in this village in the many ways that people deal with it. So one of the ways is, you know, that's poison, let's cut it down. And another way is like, uh, you know, dude comes up to it and nails a, a sign on it that says, look, this is poison. You can still use it for shade, but it's poison, you know? And then the third way, and it's always the third way, right? Every Buddhist story I've ever heard is the third way. <laughs> says, look, she walks up to the tree and she's like, oh, I was actually looking for this exact kind of poison because this is the only poison that you can create this medicine from. 
And so we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know? A lot of times I'll, I'll get caught in this kind of misunderstanding of the practice where it's like some kind of like cattle dog mentality of just like breath good, thought bad. This is crazy. It's like, you know, coming back to the breath, back to the breath, back to the breath. It's a, bro, this is another kind of tyranny, man. You know? Like there's things to be explored in all of these different ways. You know, they keep telling us, they keep reassuring us, you don't have to reject any part of your experience. Just tend to whatever is arising. And this is the part of my experience I've tried the hardest to change, the desire, the wanting mind. So there's obviously a lot here. So the aim is to discover the truth of this, this moment that's arising. And begin to shine the light of awareness on it. As it arises through it, after it. Uh, this guy writes, whether or not we get what we want, whether or not our many desires are fulfilled or left unrequited, the one is always near, the sweet taste of our own existence and the gorgeous relief of knowing that we are life itself, never an inch away from home, complete even in our un complete even in our assumed incompleteness complete even in our assumed completeness mm. so we're trying to slow the whole thing down a little bit I know the way compulsion works in my life, it's very fast. It's one thing to another, to another, to another. So how do we take space and find the gaps in between us and what we think we want, these moments? Resting in the gaps. And it takes training, you know, that's what we're doing. We're trying to see clearly. Um, One teacher called it to see through eyes no longer clouded by longing. So how do we see craving as craving, thought as thought, peace as peace? How do we see it? at its birth, to observe what is arising with interest and enough space to explore it.
How do we rest in the words of the Sutta? All that arises is of the nature to cease, and in the passing there is peace. How do we end this war on want? We see that the experience of clinging itself is unpleasant. That even if what we crave is enjoyable, the clinging kind of robs the enjoyable aspect out of it. How do we keep staying intimate with the nature of the wanting mind? I mean, wanting is just another phenomenon. It's not a problem. It's the clinging and attachment that are the problem. Continually looking at what gave us the relief, you know? Was it just a release of the wanting mind? Could it be it was just the end of wanting? And could that be available to us in every moment? Is that here right now? Wisdom is what lets go as a result of seeing or feeling the cost of hanging on. It self-liberates. We've been studying the Dhammapada a bit, and there's a line in it, and it's gone beyond becoming. It just sounds like such a, a great kindness, a great compassion that we do for ourselves. That we're not stuck in this cycle of, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then it's really going to be on. Once I get this practice, because we just bring the same thing to practice as we do everywhere else. We think it's the next thing to acquire, right? How do we gone beyond becoming? Upasika Ki, she's a, a Thai nun who wrote, just keep looking, just keep knowing. And when the mind is quiet, you'll see that nothing is there. This is the selfless nature of all phenomena, what the Buddha called the magic show of consciousness. They say, you know, it's hard to ever say the Buddha's words, but what they say about him is that when he became enlightened, 
he said a few sentences, and this was the end of that sentence. They say, realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. We have no idea what he said, you know. But 2,600 years they've been saying this, right? I really admire what you're doing here. The dedication of the practice and, and staying, you know. And uh, every time we end, you know, we have this bowing that we do and and that's what I'm bowing to. I'm bowing because I recognize the effort. And I know how hard it is to stay. <coughs> Thanks for your time and your patience. <coughs>